Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. This is Great Big History Podcast. In this episode, we continue our History 101, Greeks, Geography, Homer, and Drama. So we start with geography, as we try to do with most of our cultures. Greek geography has two components, the mountains and the sea. The mountains create poverty. They create separation. 90% of the land is useless for farming. If you want an American version of what this looks like, go to Glendale, right outside of uh, L.A., right on the other side of the hills. You go there, there's actually a very famous uh, cemetery up on a hill, and you can look out over the town, and you see it's just mountains. You're on a mountain, and then to your left and to your right are this ring of hills with nothing on them, and then in the middle of that ring is Glendale. Is a town. That's what you end up with in Greece. Well, 90% of the land is useless for farming. You can't farm on the mountain. And so you get poverty. Because remember, like 90, 95% of economics in the ancient world is, is food production. So Egypt is rich because it's got the Nile, right? Mesopotamia has two rivers. And while they're unpredictable, two rivers is better than no rivers, which is Greece. Greece has no rivers, no major rivers. So this is our first kind of poor people. Now, they won't remain poor, and we'll talk about how that happens. But this is our first kind of poor people. And so the mountains separate people as well. You get isolation of communities, as we kind of talked about with Glendale. You can only get there by the tunnels. You can't go over the hills. You have to go under them, through them. You have to punch through them if you've ever driven out there. So you get the isolation of communities which is a Greek concept of autonomia, self-rule, where we, we get autonomy from. Auto, A-U-T-O, nomia, N-O-M-I-A, meaning you rule yourself, self-ruled. You make your own rules. The people on the other side of that mountain don't tell me what to do. We do it ourselves. And so what happens is each of those communities becomes a polis, its own city, and that polis becomes the center of identity. It's how you identified yourself. So you didn't say you were Greek. There are no Greeks. Well, there are, but we'll get there. But you didn't say you were Greek. You were Athenian. You were Spartan. You were Theban. You were Corinth. You weren't Greek. You spoke Greek. You thought Greek. You worshipped the Greek gods. But you were not like the Athenians. You are not like the Spartans. You are not like the Thebans. Every city was its own. And so what we get is the development of cities. So this is our first urban people. Yeah, we had cities in Mesopotamia, yes. But that's not where most people lived. In Greece, they live in the city. They're an urban people. And so cities become the definition of civilization. You could see it in the civil or citizen. They're all connected to city. Now, that's a bit 
right? It's a bit racist. I don't know if racist is the right word because the ancient world isn't racist. They don't have racial concepts, but it's culturalist because this is where the idea that nomads who don't have cities have no civilization. Oh, they have nothing. There's a bunch of guys on horses. They don't know. You know, we had teachers when I started teaching and I had them when I was in college who were like, I'm not teaching Africa. Africa has no civilization. That was their attitude. Why? Because it wasn't Western. It wasn't lots of cities. It wasn't nation states. Or empires, even though there were empires and there were nation states and there were they they bought into that 19th century racism that black people weren't civilized. They were all living in the jungle, the national kind of the National Geographic attitude. And, you know, there were people in the 2000s, 2010s, still teaching that way. So that is a very old culturalism bias that cities make civilization. But for the Greeks, it's true. Greek civilization was urban. And it's going to be based on trade. Why? Because you don't have enough food. So who are you going to trade with? Because if you trade with the people on the other side of the mountains, one, it's hard. Two, you can't build roads to make it easier because it's mountains. And three, they don't have anything. They're as poor as you are. So poor people trading with other poor people doesn't help very much. That's where we come to the C, the other part, because the C equals connection. It equals commerce. It equals colonization. The Greeks leave Greece. They are not our first people who do so. The Phoenicians in what we would call Lebanon today are our kind of first colonial people. Not imperial, where they conquered lots of stuff and absorbed it in. Colonial, where they got on boats, they went to new places, they settled in those new places. More people came later and settled there too, and they built a little isolated community far from home and tried to keep their culture. Right? So um, the Hebrews aren't colonial. They want to stay in Cana. They have a diaspora. They are forced out of their homeland by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians. So the Phoenicians are colonialists. They get on boats and go places. They choose to go places. The Greeks do too. The Hebrews don't choose to go. They would much rather have stayed in Cana. And what happened is they got conquered. Assyrians, Babylonians picked up and moved. That's diaspora. D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A. So very different than colonialism. Where you choose to go. So use diaspora for like the Armenian diaspora. The African diaspora. For, for African Americans or African based uh, people who are living in the Western Hemisphere. They didn't choose to come. For the most part. Or have a long history. Those Because modern immigration changes that. But. 17th century, that's not true. So lots of people have been moved, and we're going to talk about that. These, you know, there's an Irish diaspora. So the Greeks colonize, they go places. Why? Well, they want land. 
and they need to make they need to trade. They need to buy stuff that they need. So commerce and colonization. So let's talk about colonization. They leave the Greek world. The Greek world is beyond Greece. The big two, the big three that we're going to talk about are from left to right. Sicily and Italy, southern Italy and Sicily, which is called Magna Gracia, Magna, M-A-G-N-A, meaning greater, and Gracia, G-R-A-E-C-I-A, Greece, Magna Gracia. So southern Italy and Sicily are Greek. They're part of Greece. They're, they're considered in the mind to be so Greek, they're part of Greece. There are, it's not Italian. There is no Italia down there. The Romans will make it Italian. For a very long time, it's Greek, long before it's Italian. The second is Ionia, the first place they're going to colonize. It's Asia Minor, West Coast. It's right across the Aegean. It's the West Coast of Turkey today. It's the strip of land only a couple miles wide between the Aegean Sea and the mountains. Inside those mountains, on the other end of those mountains, are the Hittites, or whoever the Asia Minor people, Armenians and various other peoples, eventually the the Turks. But on the coast, separated by those mountains, will be the Greeks. And then the Black Sea. The coast, the entire coast of the Black Sea was Greek-speaking. All the way around. Were all these Greek, small Greek towns, Greek colonies. Now this is going to play a big deal later. Because southern Italy and Sicily are going to be allied mostly to Sparta and Sparta's friends. And they provide food supplies to the Greeks. The Black Sea and the Crimea are allied mostly to Athens. And so when Athens and Sparta get into a war, you're going to see the Greek world kind of fracture right along those, those economic lines. It's not just cultural but also economic. So these colonies are always tied back to Greece by commerce. They, they, it's flatter in Sicily. It's much flatter in southern Italy. And so the Black Sea is the same way. And so they're able to send food supplies to Greece for money. They also push out less sophisticated peoples. In southern Italy, it will be the Latin speakers, the people who are related to the Romans. In uh, in the coast of Spain, it's Iberians. It's Thracians and various other peoples in the Black Sea. And so they're able to push out less sophisticated peoples. They don't create empires. They're, they're creating it like it's kind of like the colonies on the East Coast of the United States. If you've ever watched um, um, Pocahontas. It's this isolated little place surrounded by, you know, farms. And then beyond the farms, there's frontier. There's dangerous people or maybe not so dangerous. Maybe you trade with them. There's, there's the locals, but you are this colony. Uh, the Vikings will run their, their civilization kind of the same way. They'll go to new places, plop down a fortified base that they could... Uh, live in, surrounded by farms they could farm, and then tied by sea back to the Scandinavians that you can make money on. 
what these places represented was the frontier. More freedom, but also more dangerous. Less crowded, so you had more opportunity to make more money. You could own more land. You could be richer. The Ionians on the west coast of Asia Minor are tied into Mesopotamian trade. So by definition, they were richer. They're way more sophisticated than their cousins back in Greece, living in the mountains. The Sicilians owned way more land. And you were further away. So you had more freedom, but it was also more dangerous. Because there were more other peoples around. What about commerce? Well, we kind of always introduced that. You produce things for money, for food. So Sicily, southern Italy, the Black Sea are going to export food to Greece. Okay, well, now you need to buy that food. So you need to either mine it, get it out of the earth. You need gold or silver out of the earth to buy it, to turn into coins that you can then buy. Or you need to make stuff. You need to manufacture stuff that you could then sell for money or barter for food. So right from the beginning, poverty is forcing the Greeks to work, to work hard. Starvation is always a problem. And so they're always working, always working, always making stuff. This is going to be a point of pride where the Greeks will look at the Mesopotamians, the Persians, and be like, look at those people. Look how lazy they are. So, um, but there's always the, the worry of starvation. The, the Persians look at the Greeks and go, people are poor, poor hillbillies. You're poor mountain folk. Like, take a bath, man. It's nice. They're going to create allies. Commerce creates allies because, again, you need food. So commerce creates customers. So you get these linkages. Magna Gracia, as we talked about, goes to Sparta, the Peloponnesus. The Black Sea and Ionia are tied to Athens by trade. So you make allies. You make trade connections. You, you, you keep in contact with your cousin Poli, right? Because where did the colonists come from? They came from somewhere. Well, you keep those connections. And so it binds this Greek world together. So you go off, you make a colony, you go off to North Africa somewhere, you plop down a colony, you plop down a fortified position, you put up some farms. Who are you going to trade with? Well, you're going to trade with the people you're related to. So if you're from Corinth, you're like, hey, who knows some Corinth? Who knows who to sell stuff to in Corinth? Like someone's related to somebody. And so you sell your stuff into Corinth and from Corinth it goes to other places. And so it binds this world together. There's also commerce, not colonization, because this would upset people, but commerce allows for connection to older civilizations. Trade with Egypt. Why? Because they have food and they have knowledge. They're the oldest continuous civilization at the moment. They have 25 uh, dynasties. And so they have a lot of science. They have a lot of knowledge. Um, Plato will later say, uh, the Greeks took everything that made Greece Greece from the from the Egyptians. They, they the Egyptians invented all of it. We just made it better. But if you need food, man, you're gonna go whoop down to down to Egypt. Egypt's got plenty of food. 
Ionia is going to be owned about in the 700s BC by the Persians. Well, they're owned by the Lydians, and then in the 500s, Cyrus comes along and conquers the Lydians and hoovers up, absorbs the Ionians in the 530s. So, but that allowed the Ionians to be tied into Asiatic trade, to Mesopotamian trade, and knowledge, and institutions. And so, um, so the Greeks don't have to stay poor hillbillies. They do have connections. They have connections to each other, and they have connections to older civilizations. Now, if you take a look at the map, if you're watching the video, you take a look at the map, especially the southern, um, the two bottom maps. There's Sicily and southern Italy, and on the right, there's Ionia, and you'll notice something about all the towns. They're all on the sea. Almost all of them are on the sea. Why? Because being on the sea allowed you to connect, allowed you to connect to peoples. As long as you were a port, you could connect to other peoples. Remember we talked about the Hebrews and how Jerusalem is not a port, and thus it was cut off from trade, from, from the larger trade, world from the larger um knowledge world which is okay that's what they wanted they they created jerusalem as a giant fortification in a semi-arid land to protect it they didn't want to be connected to these other peoples to whether it's the phoenicians the philistines the other canaanites that wasn't their goal remember we talked about the hebrews separating themselves out but the Greeks were tied by colonies to each other. And so you see this. All of these cities are on the sea. So they could trade with whomever. Or trade in any direction. As long as you touch the sea. And there's a famous scene in Xenophon's Anabasis, the march up country. Where the, the army, the Greek army, having been, uh, having invaded, having allied itself with a Persian prince... Who, was, who started a mutiny. He was a rebel. The, they invaded Persia. They marched all the way to the capital. The Persian prince is killed in the big battle. The Greek army survives, wins the battle, and then goes, they do a big shrug and go, what do we do? And they're like, well, we should leave. And there's a famous scene. It's extremely famous in the ancient world where they reach, having they got out of Persia, and they reach the Black Sea. And they see the Black Sea, and the cry goes out, Thalassa, Thalassa, the sea, the sea, because that's when they finally knew they were safe, when they saw, saw the sea. Because the sea, they knew the Black Sea, there were Greek towns. All you had to do was find a Greek town, you could get home. Thalassa, Thalassa, the sea, the sea. And that's how the Greeks thought about it. The sea was their connection to each other, to home. Whereas the deserts of Mesopotamia was a for we might as well have been the moon. It was a foreign country that terrible things could have done. You would have been killed, destroyed, and forgotten about. You know, sucked up by the sand. But the sea. That brings us to culture. So we did geography, the mountains and the sea. So what effect does this have on culture? Well, we start with the Odyssey. Now, we're actually not starting with the Odyssey. We're starting with Homer. Homer. He went by the name of Homer. Homer is writing around 
800 BCE. Now, he's not actually writing. He's a, the story is he's a blind poet. If you're, if you're a Witcher fan, he's Yasker Dandelion. He's a oral poet telling stories, and his stories are the most famous. He's the most important writer for the Greeks. Everybody who's educated, everybody who's educated read or studied him. He provides the cultural unity. Everybody. You go as an archaeologist and you start digging in the Mediterranean or anywhere. And you plop up. You, you go, oh, I think we hit a Greek colony. How do you know? Well, here's the Iliad. And if we dig over there, we found an odyssey. So the Greeks were definitely here. They took it everywhere with them. Alexander invaded the Persian Empire with two books. Xenophon's Anabasis, the March Up Country, which he used as like his textbook, how to invade the Persian Empire. That's how he did it. The second was an annotated guide of the Iliad. It was annotated by Aristotle, so that's some that's a badass book. And he brought that with him to inspire him for entertainment, to 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 rally him in dark times. But he brought the Iliad and the Anabasis. That's how important Homer was. Why? Why are the educated Greeks going to study him? Why? Well, my argument is he taught them how to be men. He taught the values of masculinity. He does talk about women. He does talk about femininity. And we'll talk a little bit about that in the Odyssey. But he really teaches Greek men how to be men. And he does it through the Iliad, which is the original kind of war story, and the Odyssey, which is the original road trip. There is a, um, a theory in education circles, in, in literature circles, which is that there are only 16 original stories. Some have it up to 21. I know it is 16. That there are 16 er stories or uber stories. There are 16 kinds of stories. And if that's true, Homer essentially has two of them. The war story, the men, the brother in arms, the men at war, the band of brothers. That's the Iliad, I-L-L-I-A-D. And then there's the road trip. A bunch of dudes in a high-tech vehicle getting into crazy-ass adventures. That's the Odyssey. If you've watched any war movie from The Seven Samurai, Magnificent Seven, or um, Saving Private Ryan, or... Aliens, right? They're all the Iliad. They're all a bunch of misfits. They don't really get along, but they learn through each other that they could depend on each other and they're stronger together and they have to fight this evil. They have to fight, if not evil, it's because that's more of a Christian concept than a Greek one. Uh, they have to fight their enemy and overcome. And through survival and victory, you gain fame. Right? And then there's the Odyssey, which is everything from on the road to 
a whole bunch of Bob Dylan songs to um yeah to the movie that's in Vegas that starts out with the guys having uh having a bachelor night and a tiger in there in their uh, hotel. So they're all road trip stories. Dante's Inferno is a road trip story. He's just going through hell, but it's a road trip story. So he's teaching these mas- these values of masculinity. So let's talk about the Iliad. <laughs> it's the Greek stack Troy. And so we have our we have Homer, his city of Troy, population, uh, and he types in zero. He writes in zero. Because that's what they did. They obliterated Troy for stealing Helen from Sparta. And this is it's a symbolism for Greek revenge against Asia for an original humiliation. You know, Helen literally means Greece. Hellas is Greece, right? The Greeks are Hellenes. They're not Greeks. The Greeks is actually a, a Roman insult, a Roman joke about them. Um, they call themselves Hellenes. So it's literally the Greeks getting... Greece back from 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 the Asians, from the Asiatic peoples. Um, and I use Asian not to mean East Asian. In the classical works, it's Asiatic is used to mean all of these people who are in Mesopotamia, um, who aren't on 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 the European side of the Bosphorus, who are on the far side. Um, so they're in Asia Minus, that's the Lydians, there's the Armenians, there's, and there's a whole host of lots of different peoples. And so if you read any of the ancient sources, they they don't name them all by names. They, they kind of group them all up and they call them the Asiatics. That's how the Greeks seem to have referred to them. Um, they use Persian and Median interchangeably. As I said, there was a joke, one man's meat is another man's Persian. I mean, they're, they're, there's no difference. They, they're the same freaking thing. But let's get back. The Iliad is the Greek sack Troy for stealing Helen from Sparta. And this is itself a symbolism of the Greek revenge against Asia for, the, for an original humiliation. Because remember, the Mesopotamians, the Asiatics, are richer than the Greeks. And so what does this teach? It teach war is men's business. Men do war. And it brings men together. Every other chapter, there's a Greek war council. Odysseus is, all these Greeks hate each other. Achilles hates Agamemnon. The Ajaxes don't like each other. There's all this fights with each other. And Odysseus, one of his superpowers is he's able to bring them all together. Kind of like Captain America, I guess. He's able to bring all these guys together, and and that's the Greek War Council. And so you can see like proto-democracy working its way out in the Greeks already. You, know, you bring everybody together, and you discuss, what should we do? But war is not natural. So war is what men do. When Helen is stolen, the men go to war. They get in their ships, and they go. And, they, and the Iliad is the last few months of a 10-year war. These guys go to war and they don't come back as the old, as the World War I, you know, song goes, we won't come back till it's over over there. And that's essentially how the Greeks treated war. The men, men is war's business. Men, men do war. It brings men together. Not always happily, but they work together. 
but it's not natural. And there's a very tender scene with Hector. Hector is the leader of the defenses. He's Prince of Troy. He's clearly, and, and, and Homer does this, the Romans will do this. He's clearly the best, he's the hero. He is the best person. He's better than Achilles. He's way better than Agamemnon. He's a way better prince. He is like the knight in shining armor. He is Arthur. He is, he is everything you want your prince to be. Right? And the reason why the, the classics do this is, and we'll see this again when we talk about like the Romans and Tacitus, is you show what's wrong with you by pointing out the awesomeness of your enemy. It's a way of it's a way of not insulting yourself, but by highlighting the awesomeness of Hector, all the Greeks listening go, yeah, we don't do that. That's not us. And so there's a very tender scene with Hector, who is about to go fight Achilles. Achilles is freaking mad because Hector has killed Achilles' best friend slash lover. And Hector knows he has to go out. His wife actually says, don't go. Stay with me. You can't value glory and killing Achilles more than living with me. Because they also know there's a, there's a, there's a prophecy that he'll, Achilles is going to kill him. And Hector goes, honey, I, I have to go. One, war's men's business. Two, I'm a prince. If I don't go, he's calling me out. If I don't go, wh who would follow me? They don't think I'm a coward. I have to go. And so what he does is he goes to pick up, he says goodbye to his wife. He says, I love you. And she's like, but you're leaving me. My father's dead. My brothers are all dead. You're the last man in my life. You can't go. And he's like, honey, I have to go. This is what men do. And it sucks. And I'm with you. I don't want to die. But I have to do it. No one would respect me. And that would be worse. Would you want to be married to a man no one respects? And she's like, I want you to be alive. But yeah, that's, I see your point. He's like, I can't be a man no one respects. I, I just can't be that guy. You wouldn't want to be married to that guy. So I have to do this. And we see this. We'll see this with all the tragedies. That the idea is that men, people do what they have to do, even if it leads them into tragedy. So Hector is a tragic figure. Because... He's going to be a prince. He's going to act the role of the prince, and it's going to lead him to disaster. But he goes to pick up his son, and he is in his armor. He is in his, his horse-headed horse helmet. He's got his sword. He's got the whole thing. Right? He goes to pick up his son, and his son hides from him. His son is scared of him. He hides behind the nurses. And what? And, and Hector then laughs. Ha, 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 look at my son. And he goes in and picks him up anyway. And he gives this beautiful prayer of basically, may my son grow up to be better than me. It's the only thing I could want is for my son to be better than me. Now, his son's going to be murdered in the sack of Troy. We, so we also know, this is not a surprise. This is not spoiler. We know this is going to happen. Anyone who's, who, who's listening to Homer tell his tale knows Hector's son is going to be dashed, thrown off the top of the wall. Like, he's going to be murdered. It's going to end badly. So here's this, here's this father giving this prayer for a son that 
we, the audience, knows is not going to happen. So it's got that tragedy. He says, I want my son to be better. But what Homer does by making the little boy afraid of his father is to tell you that war is not natural. War is what men do, but it's not what we're supposed to do. And Homer actually has a line somewhere that says basically that that war flips the world upside down. In life, fathers bury sons. Sons bury fathers. In life, sons bury fathers. But in war, fathers bury sons. And in fact, that's how it will end with, with King Priam coming to Achilles to beg for his son's body back and Achilles realizing that sooner or later, and it's going to be sooner, his father will have to come to beg some man to get his body back. That sooner or later, he won't defeat every enemy. He will get a little slow. He'll get a little old. Someone will come along and someone will kill him. That war is not natural. Men shouldn't do war. They do, but they shouldn't. It's not what we're supposed to do. Two, Homer teaches that cleverness is better than strength. To find a way around the problem. For 10 years, the Greeks are throwing themselves at the walls of Troy and cannot bust through. In fact, when we pick up the story, Hector is kicking ass. He is everywhere. He is mowing people down. He is burning Greek ships. He is destroying shit. So how did the Greeks win? Well, there's a famous example. It's a... Example so famous, it is how we describe how to get around the problem. And it's the Trojan horse. Odysseus comes up with a sneaky, sneaky horse. A lie. That for 10 years they, they tried to go right at the walls and failed. So what you should do is find a way around your problem. If strength doesn't work, cleverness is better. Find a way around. This is what will happen at the Battle of Salamis. This is also essentially the art of war, which is written a couple hundred years later, but is not affected by it. But the art of war, Sun Tzu's art of war is, you don't want to smash, fight two armies right into each other. You want to win long before you fight your battle. You want to starve them out. You want to you, know, you want to buy off their generals. You want to. You don't want to fight. You want to win long before you fight. This is Muhammad Ali at the Rumble in the Jungle, trying to freak out his opponent. All those famous photos of like him, like you know, the whole get in the guy's head type of thing. Cleverness is better than strength. We will see this, and it will save the Greeks. At the Battle of Salamis from conquest, had the Greeks, like at Thermopylae, fought straight ahead to, to, to fight the Persians, they would have lost, they would have been conquered. We wouldn't know any of this. It was to find a way around the problem. Three, there are rules to war, and if you break them, the gods get mad. Achilles kills Hector in anger. 
He doesn't kill him fairly. He doesn't kill him according to the rules. He kills him in anger, which is kind of why I dislike the movie Troy, because it, it doesn't get this. He kills Hector in anger. Like, Hector has killed, and killed honorably, Achilles' best friend, cousin, slash lover, Patroclus. Now, I'll give you just a little breakdown of, of how this works. Achilles got into a fight with Agamemnon. Agamemnon is king. He's general of the Greeks. And the first thing we start with is the Achilles' rage. Because Agamemnon is pulling rank. The Greeks have won a small battle. They're handing out the prizes. And there is a super hot slave girl that the men say, Achilles should get her. He is our best warrior. And Agamemnon comes in. He wasn't even at the battle and says, no, 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 no. I'm king. I get the pick first and I pick her. So he's totally fronting him. Dude, this is right out of, like, right out of uh, the hip-hop wars of the 90s. He is totally fronting Achilles. He's totally, he's, he's humiliating Achilles in front of the other men. It's not about the woman at all. He's pulling rank. And Achilles is like, I won't fight. F you guys. You got good luck winning without me. I am the best. I am awesome. I'm going to sit in the mud and I am going to wait. I am going to wait till Hector kicks your ass so bad you come back to beg me. Beg me to come fight for you. You beg me. And I'm going to say no. And then I'm going to get on my ship and I'm going to leave. And if you've ever been broken up with somebody for somebody else and you've ever said, well, if you come, they're just going to break your heart. They're just going to leave you. And if you come back, I'm not taking you back. And some of you have been in the position where they came back and you went, uh-uh, nope. No, 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 no. And didn't that feel good? Well, that's Achilles. Achilles is waiting for that moment. When Agamemnon then comes back and goes, oh, please, I didn't realize how much of an idiot I was. And, <laughs> and Achilles goes, dude, I've moved on. Now, Patroclus, and you could look it up on, online. It doesn't really matter how you spell it. But uh, Patroclus is a young man. He's younger. He has no fame. He has no reputation. So Achilles can sit in the mud and say, I'm not fighting. And everyone, you know, they, they complain about it, but they respect it. They're like, well, he's freaking Achilles. He's got a point, right? He's an all-star. Like, you should treat him with more respect. Patroclus, on the other hand, is a young man with no reputation. So he goes to Achilles and says, I have to fight. I have to fight. I need to make a reputation. Otherwise, people will think I'm a coward if I just hang out with you all day. And Achilles is like, fine, fine, fine. I understand. I understand. Young men need to make a reputation. All right. But I love you. And Patroclus is like, I love you. Like, and you have to understand, this is not our love. This is a different kind of love. This is Greek love. And this is like guy love in the, in the song called Guy Love from the, the, the TV show. Um... I can't remember the TV Scrubs. Look up, a, look up the song Scrubs, Guy Love. And this is essentially what we're talking about. And, and like, I love you. So I don't want something bad to happen to you. Take my armor. And Patroclus goes, but if I take your armor, I will look like you. Because it will cover my head. It will cover my body. It will cover everything. I, I will look like you on the battlefield. And Achilles goes, exactly. One, no one will mess with you. 
because you'll look like me. Two, it's magic armor, so you can't die. Right? I can't die in it, so it's it, it will protect you. So do this. If you do this, I will let you go fight your war. So he goes, fine, I'll do that. So he puts on the armor, and in the middle of this battle, he comes running out. The, the Greeks are getting their heads handed to them by Hector. Comes running out, and the Greeks cheer. Here comes Achilles, right? And the and the Trojans are peeing their pants. Oh my God, here comes Achilles! And Hector's like, well, dude, we got to get this done, man. We got to rumble. You know, if I'm gonna die against Achilles, I got to do it now. Like, well, here we are. And so they rumble, right? Hector wins. Hector stabs right through the armor. Now remember, there's the prophecy that Hector's supposed to die for by Achilles, right? And he has just killed Achilles. He has killed the man wearing Achilles' armor. Who else would be wearing that but Achilles? Three, it's magic armor. You're not supposed to kill a man in magic armor. So Hector's like, oh, wow. So the body drops down. Everyone else is like, in the forming the giant circle, like, Whoa, whoa, that wasn't supposed to happen. He takes off the helmet, right? Which covers the face, right? It covers everything but the mouth. Takes off the helmet. And there is not 35-year-old, experienced, man amongst men Achilles. There's 19-year-old Patroclus, a boy. And Hector is furious. What kind of man sends a boy to do a man's job? Because he also knows Achilles is going to lose his goddamn mind. Achilles is going to, his head is going to explode when he hears this. Like, who's going to tell Achilles that his cousin, his best friend, his lover is dead? Like, nobody wants to do that. And I don't know who does it. Is it Odysseus? I wouldn't surprise me if it is Odysseus. But... Achilles, so one, Hector knows Achilles is going to lose his mind. Two, he's mad. Achilles sent the boy to do a man's job. Of course, this wasn't a fair fight. Like, of course, of course Hector's going to win. Like, Patroclus is a boy. He's good. He's a good fighter. He's not Hector good. You know, come on. It's, it was literally a boy against a man. Of course Hector wins. So it's robbing Hector of his victory. He thinks he's fighting Achilles. And no, he's killing a boy. Like, So he's pissed, right? So Achilles finds out Patroclus is dead. And in his, his grief, in his anger, he goes running out. That's where Hector, the, the, the two sides go their separate ways, right? The, everyone's like, dude, we're just going to like... This battle's over. We're just going to wait for later. See what how this stuff happens. Hector goes back to his wife and goes, right, this is going to be bad. I know this is going to be bad. And then Achilles is like shouting out at, at the city for Hector to come out. Like he has lost his mind, right? So he's not in control of himself. Now, you have to understand, being in one's control of yourself becomes a philosophical point. That's stoicism. Real men are in control of their emotions. Even Greeks, and Greeks are hot-headed, but they're supposed to be in control. Achilles is not in control. So he kills Hector in anger, and then he desecrates the body. He takes Hector's body, the body of the Prince of Troy, the body 
that is beloved by several of the gods and desecrates it. He ties it to his chariot and at 30 miles an hour drives around the city of Troy screaming. To understand how terrible this is, you can imagine what happens to a dog or a person who is tied to a car and then dragged for 15 or 20 miles. There is nothing left of Hector's body by the time Achilles is exhausted by it. And so then he goes back to the then he goes back to the ships. He brings his body, this mess, this carcass with him. It's not it's not tr- Hector anymore. And this is one of those things that really upset me about the movie because in the movie he comes back and everyone's like, "Yeah, yeah, you're so great Achilles, you're not no. Everyone's like, "Get the f away from Achilles." Cuz you know what Apollo's going to do? Do you have any idea what the gods who liked Hector and are now watching what Achilles is doing, feel about this moment? Apollo is the god of Troy. Apollo has been protecting Hector. Apollo is has gone onto the battlefield himself and weighed lace to the Greeks with his giant bow. And now he watches his favorite human body desecrated after an unhonorable fight? And so what happens? Achilles gets killed. Achilles gets killed by Paris, Hector's younger brother, with a magic arrow. Like, uh, uh, Apollo's like, you, he's like, he goes to Paris, goes, they're coming into the city, they're coming in, shoot Achilles. And Paris's like, I don't know where Achilles is. Look at all these Greeks. They're killing everybody. It's a mess. It's a disaster. Goes, just fire. Come on, Paris, just shoot. And so Paris is like, okay, and Apollo, and this becomes the magic fucking, excuse my language, magic missile if you're a D&D fan. Apollo takes this, this, this arrow, and it's going around people, it's going above people, it's going underneath their legs, and it, boom, hits Achilles in the one place he's vulnerable, in his ankle. The gods get vengeance. What does the Odyssey teach? The Odyssey is the is the sequel. The, it's Odysseus and his men trying to get home from Troy alive, even though Poseidon hates Odysseus. And I mean, hey, Apollo hates Achilles. Poseidon hates Odysseus. Now, Athena loves Odysseus, so that's going to be a big save for him. I mean... And that tells you, right? There are gods that love love Achilles, but Achilles acts so far outside the norms that when Apollo's like, I am killing that mother, all the other guys are like, dude, we can't defend that. You're right. That's fair. That's fair. Right? Odysseus has a god, Athena, who's still on his side, right? But he's got a god who hates him. So what does the Odyssey teach other than, like, be careful the friends you go on road trips with? It teaches loyalty. It's the loyalty of a wife for her husband. Penelope versus Clytemestra. Clytemestra. Penelope is loyal 
She does not marry any other men. She does not have sex with any other men, even though she could. And that's an important part. She thinks her husband is dead. She has no word that Odysseus is alive. That's a very important part for Penelope. She is totally allowed to marry somebody else. And she's like, I'm just going to, I think he's alive. I'm just going to give him a little more time. A little more time. Now, he's been away at war for 10 years. And then he's been lost at sea for 10 more years. Like, he's declared dead. All the men of the island are like, dude, come on. Penelope. Clytemestra, on the other hand, is Agamemnon's trophy wife. And you can imagine Agamemnon does not treat a trophy wife very well. So when he leaves to go fight against Troy, Clytemestra is picks up lovers immediately. Why? Because she wants to murder Agamemnon. Because in some of the stories, Agamemnon actually, to sail faster, makes murders their children. Her her children. Clytemestra's children. So it's vengeance. But it there's other stories, but it doesn't matter. It's Clytemestra immediately starts sleeping around and trying to find a man who will kill Agamemnon. And what does she find? She finds a trophy, like, teenage boy. She finds a guy who's like, wait, I can have sex with the sexiest woman in, 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 in the world, and all I have to do is kill some old fart? Dude, I'm totally doing that. And so... So when Agamemnon comes home and goes, honey, I'm home, and he, she's there and goes, oh, did you win? He's like, of course I won. I am Agamemnon, the greatest of all Greek kings. And she's like, well, then let's have sex. And he's like, oh, well, of course. And she's like, well, you have to take off your armor. And she's, he's like, well, of course. He takes off, drops his armor, and out from behind the door, out from behind the curtains, comes the young boy who stabs him in the back. Meanwhile, she stabs him in the gut. Agamemnon got to enjoy his victory. The greatest victory of any Greek king for all of about 15 minutes. Why? Because his wife was not loyal. Now, was he loyal to her? No. She had a totally valid reason. And this is where the Oresteia comes in, which is becomes uh, the, the last part of the Oresteia is a law case about whether or not Clytemestra had a point. Because now Agamemnon's children are like, well, we have to get revenge for this. And it's, it's the idea that the blood revenge, it keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. You always need revenge. You know, violence never ends, right? There's always a new justification. And so the, the, the Oresteia ends, the last play ends with a court case where each side argues whether or not they should be allowed to get vengeance. So, very democratic, very Athenian, actually. So it's a wife for her husband. Penelope is the good wife. Clytemestra is the bad wife. Clytemestra totally had reasons to be the quote-unquote bad wife, but it is teaching you loyalty. You want to marry a Penelope, and you want to treat her well. That's the other part that's part of this. Treat your wife well. Agamemnon does not treat Clytemestra well. Two, it's the son for his father. Telemachus tries to find Odysseus. And so what does he do? He goes to all of Odysseus' old friends. Nestor. Menelaus. He goes to these guys and goes, can you tell me about my father? 
So Telemachus is, is, was born, he's maybe three, four, five months old when his father leaves. He's raised by a single mom. He doesn't know his father. He's her, you know, he doesn't, he's had his mom say, your father was a great man, but he doesn't know. Like, of course, mom's going to say that. Mom's not, not going to say your dad was a loser. Not if he's King Odysseus, right? So he wants to know who is my father. He's trying to find his father. So he goes back to the old friends. And so he goes to Nestor, the oldest, the wisest of the Greeks. And he goes, he shows up and, you know, Nestor's cranky. And Nestor's like, what is this kid doing here? I'm old. I'm like 110 years old. What? Stop. Why do they keep sending these boys here? Oh, stop annoying me. And as a professor who has done this for 20 years and gets people who show up at office hours like, I just want to talk for an hour and a half about this one thing. Like, oh, just, I'm exhausted. I'm old. And I'm not 110 years old. And Nestor's like, I'm old. And he goes, I'm Telemachus. He goes, I don't know what that is. He goes, I'm Odysseus' son, and my father is lost at sea. And I'm wondering if you could tell me something about him. And in the story, he changes. There's a complete change. Nestor, like, loses 20 years. and goes, you're Odysseus's boy? You're Odysseus? Let, oh, let me tell you. Get this man some meat. Get him some beer. Come, let me tell you about your father. And this is where we get the, the Trojan horse. The Trojan horse is not in the Iliad. It's in the Odyssey. And it's a, it's a, oh, it's a friend of, the, of a son. It's a friend of the son's father telling the son. And if, you've, if you are lucky, you will one day bury your father. Because if you're unlucky, your father is burying you. So if you're lucky, you will bury your father. And if you're very lucky, you, you will have some of your old father's friends there who will tell you what your father used to be like. Because this is the thing. You only know your father as a father. You don't know your father as a, as a team teammate, as a co-worker, as a brother, as a, as a, uh, um, as a friend, you know him as a father, and your he succeeds or fails as a father, but lots of other people know your father as something else. Oh, do you know who your father was? Your father when he was in college, he was. He kept a he kept a family of baby squirrels alive during a winter storm with his breath. He fed them with an eyedropper. And you're like, that's not my father. He's like, oh, you're a father. Oh, you're a father. What a man. And so it's a loyalty of a son for the memory of his father, of wanting to know who his father was. Was his father a jerk? Because if his father was a jerk, he, he's got to live beyond that. He can't be a jerk. He's got to be better than his father. Or was his father the man? Because if he's the man, he's got to live up to that reputation. So it's a son wanting to know who he is by knowing who his father was. And the only people who know who his father was, was his father's homeboys. And third... It is a captain for his troops. Odysseus is the leader of men at war. 
It is his job to get them home. They trust him. They are his men. When Odysseus says jump, they go how high. They just jump. They are his men. They have gone to war for him. They have stayed at Troy for 10 years for him. He has promised them, I will get you home. I will get you money from conquest, and I will get you home. And none of them get home. Now, some of them do stupid things. They bring it on themselves. They don't listen. They're selfish. But also, Odysseus is cursed by Poseidon. Odysseus Fs up. Odysseus brings it on his own men. And so this is an important part that's not, it's implied, but it's not in the Odyssey. And it's part I want I like I, I talk about is what happens after the Odyssey. The Odyssey ends with Odysseus. He's home. He's got his son. He's got his wife. He is killed. He is there is a mass murder of all the bad guys who were not loyal to him. They were all trying to get with his wife. And He's angry about it. And they're like, you were dead. You weren't alive. You were drowned at sea. We're supposed to be able to marry her. And then he gets shot in the face by Odysseus with this giant bow. But what happens the next day? What happens when Odysseus goes to the market? Who is he going to run into? He's going to run into people Telemachus' age. He's going to run into teenage boys. Who are going to do what Telemachus does? My father went with you to war. What happened to him? Oh, he got eaten by a cyclops. No, you don't want to say that. Oh, he got smashed to death by, by, uh, by giants. No, you don't want to say that. Uh, oh, he, uh, he got eaten when he was a pig. When he got turned into a pig by witches. Uh, because, um, of my fault. Like, Odysseus survived, and none of his men survived. And I have had, I have not gone to war, but I have had enough veterans in my classes tell me, as officers, that they would much rather get all of their men back and them not get back than to lose their soldiers. So what Odysseus is has survival guilt. He has survivor's guilt. He's going to live the rest of his life knowing that there are widows and orphans who blame him. How dare you? How dare you? Whether they say it to him or not, how dare you come home and get your wife and get your son and get your legacy and get your kingdom back. And my husband is dead. My son is fatherless because of you, because he trusted you. So it's the loyalty of a captain for his troops. He's supposed to get them home. And it's survivor guilt that he doesn't, even though it doesn't go into it. It doesn't explain it. And the reason why it doesn't explain it is you don't need to tell people. They already know. He lived. His men didn't. He's leaving widows and orphans. They know because they go off to war. Right? Most Greeks, remember we said war is what Greeks do. Most Greeks will go off to war at some point in their lives. They know. So they know what it's like to be alive and their friend be dead. 
Drama. From 500 to 400 BCE is the golden age of Athens. It's also the golden age of drama. Plays. We're talking about plays. The theater. Now, drama starts earlier and goes later, but it's the golden age. This is this hundred years. And it lines up with the golden age of Athens. It's public entertainment. Whereas Homer was private. Once it, especially once it kind of gets written down, it's private entertainment. Drama can only be done in public. You had to do it in a group. And so the biggest place in most Greek cities is the theater. They, it holds up to 50% of the population. It's where democracy will happen in Athens. They use the theater. It was the biggest place. And it's based on classical characters and themes. Why? Be people knew the stories. What does that mean? It's like Snow White or Cinderella. You know how it's going to end. So the real question is not how is it going to end? What is the story about? There are some like like um, Aeschylus is the Persians. Though you knew how that ended. You knew Greece wins. But it's how well is the story told? I know in Snow White a prince will save her she will escape the poison. The dwarves will defeat the evil witch and they'll live happily ever after. How well is that story told? Did I get bored in the middle? Did I walk out? Did I not care about the actors? What they had to say? The words? The, the, the update that they made? Or was I totally fascinated? So how does drama work? So one, everybody who goes to see the play knows how the play is going to work. They know what the characters are. They know what the themes are. They know how it's going to end, right? It's, there's no surprises. The question is, how well does it go? So how is it organized? Number three, it's the actor and the chorus. The actor represents the individual and the chorus represents the group. And you may go, why? Why would you do this? And the answer is very clearly because Athens is a democracy. And so it has this temptation. It has this temptation. It has this tension between the individuality. We see this in America, right? The masks. About wearing masks during COVID. It's, I am an individual. I don't have to. But, and then the group goes, yes, you do. You're in our, you're in our restaurant. You're in our, 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 our supermarket. You have to wear a mask. Because it saves the rest of us. It is the individual, what I want, versus the group, the chorus. What society wants. And the individual represents independence, individualism, freedom. I want to be free. I want to be me. Versus the chorus. And they literally are separate on stage. The actor stands as an individual. The chorus stands as a group. And the group represents tradition, society, limitations. Do I like wearing a mask? No, it fogs up my glasses. But do I wear a mask when I go to the supermarket? Yes. Why? Because I want to be safe, but I also want to keep other people safe. There's a poor, not literally poor, but there's a poor person who's got to work as a cashier. Poor young woman, poor young guy who has to work. And, he's, and once they finish with me, they got, then they'll do this for 10 hours of person after person after person. If every one of them don't wear a mask, they're in trouble. Sooner or later, someone's going to come with COVID. So I wear a mask to protect them. 
to protect the group. And that's what the chorus represents, tradition, society, and limitations in a democracy. Listen to us. Act like us. We see this in Beauty and the Beast during Bonjour. They have hero moments. Belle has a hero moment. And in Belle's hero moment, where she sings about, I want so much more than this, Belle is alone. There is no one in her background. Her hero moment in the song is all about her, what she wants. Gaston's hero moment is just watch I'm going to make Belle my wife. He's got the solo, and he's surrounded by members of the town. They literally crowd in around him. She is literally an individual, and Gaston literally is the group. He's leading the group. So what moves the story? Well, you have a great hero and hubris equal tragedy, equal the downfall. You have a great hero. These are not ordinary people. These are not regular Joes. These are kings. These are heroes. These are famous, famous people. The Greeks did not care about ordinary people. Ordinary people's lives were hard and they sucked. So what do they want? They want rich people, famous people. Uh, military leaders, kings, princes. And what is their great flaw? What is the thing that's going to undo them? Hubris. H-U-B-R-I-S. Which is badly translated as pride. But dude, I have pride. I feel pride. You feel pride. That's a very, tr it's a very Catholic, very Christian take on pride. Pride cometh before the fall. Is um, paradise lost. Right? Hubris isn't really pride because pride can be good. I'm proud of my nieces and my nephews. You're proud of your kids when they get an A. Like, that's not bad pride. Hubris is violent self love, it is a great position and great ability linked with a statement that I deserve to be treated better. I deserve to be godlike. This is not the Christian concept of pride or conceit. These people can walk the walk. This is LeBron. This is Michael Jordan. This is Wayne Gretzky going, I am great. And everybody's saying, yes, you are. You are great. Every, every piece of evidence supports you are great. So why is that a bad thing? It's not a bad thing. They can walk the walk. They could talk the talk. Gaston. Gaston gets a four-minute long song about how great he is that that's people in town sing about him this is why the 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 see in america we're Demo we're democrats I mean low d democrats we're, we're a democracy so we we have a tough time with this we go oh you're conceited you think you're better than me uh there are people who are better than you Le i cannot do what lebron does i cannot do what simone biles does i can't even imagine doing what simone biles does Serena Williams? Forget that. They can walk the walk and they can talk the talk. So they should be rich. They should be famous because they could do something no one else can do. The problem is where you start to think, I deserve. I deserve that. That this natural ability is mine. It's innate. It's me that's better than other people. And you start to think of yourself as a god. And that's the problem. Gods don't like that, first of all. 
but it's I deserve. Gaston can do everything in town. He's the most famous guy in town. Nobody is upset about that. No one thinks Gaston's a bad guy. Everybody thinks Gaston is a bad guy. Even Belle thinks Gaston's okay. And Gaston and Belle's father's like, why don't you marry Gaston? He's a nice guy. Right? Everybody likes Gaston. But where he fails is when LeFou goes, really? You want to marry Belle? And he goes, she's the most beautiful girl in town. And that makes her the best. And don't I deserve the best? It's not what does Belle want? It's not what would make me happy, which might be triplets. The blonde triplets would be perfectly happy marrying Gaston all together and sharing him and being in a like a giant polyamorous marriage. They would have loved to all be married to Gaston at the same time and shared him. He wants Belle. And he says, because I deserve it. And that's hubris. And that is the, you don't deserve anything in the Greek world. So Aristotle's rules for a good play. What must they include? So Aristotle has the poetics, which is the, the original how to write a good story. And you get writers today who will tell you, I have gone to writer's seminars, and they'll say, read the poetics. And I'm like, I have read the poetics. And they're like, that's all you need. And I'm like, really? Can I get my 150 bucks back? Because, well, and they're like, well, you get dinner too. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's fair. Um, but that's, read the poetics. And then they go on from there. Right. And Aristotle has all good stories must have these things. And I'm pulling out three of them. I think there's seven. I want to say there's seven, but there's three that I'm pulling out. The first is catharsis. And catharsis is the emotional connection of the audience with the play of the story. You have to, your audience has to, when, when, when Spider-Man goes, 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 I don't feel so good. And you have to cry. And be like, no, Spider-Man, no. You, you have to watch the first 15 minutes, the first 10 minutes of Up. And be like, oh, their entire life is together and now she's dead. And I... Or, or, or. Um, Inside Out, where the, where the elephant has, uh, the, 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 the elephant clown has Sacrificed himself, has fallen into the into the memory well, will be forgotten. It's like, bye, give her a hug for me. And you're like, no. Why does that matter? Because none of it is real. The elephant is not real. The characters in Up are, are, are animated. It's not real. And yet you're watching the story and you're having a real emotion connected to it. When Luke Skywalker shows up at the end of The Mandalorian, I cried. I am an old-ass man, but I am old enough to have gone to every Star Wars movie in the movie theater. Everyone. I played Luke Skywalker as a kid on the playground. And so when he comes out and is like, going to save Baby Yoda... I'm like, oh, so that's catharsis. I am connected to this character. I'm connected to this moment. I'm connected to Baby Yoda. I'm connected to Luke. And the writers have, and the producers, and the actors, and they have pulled it off. 
This is fake. There is no Luke Skywalker. There is no Baby Yoda. I am watching it on a screen. It's not real people. And yet, I am having a real emotional response to it. It has succeeded. Say what you will about everything else. It has succeeded. You do this with music all the time, especially when you're a teenager. Catharsis. You have to be emotionally invested. If you're on your phone being like, yeah, whatever. Well, who showed up? Some guy with a lightsaber? Uh, eh, whatever. Then, then it's failed. The second thing is peripatia. The reversal of fortune. It is the moment where things start going wrong. Romeo and Juliet. In Romeo and Juliet, they are happy star-crossed lovers. For three quarters of that play, it's going to end well. They're going to announce that they got married. The priest is going to bless it. The parents will be like, well, all right, you're married. The priest blessed it. Everybody's happy. The... The prince will be like, well, what God has put together, no man shall put asunder. And they'll just accept it and they'll have a big party. And then Mercutio gets killed by Tybalt. Because Tybalt is like, effing Romeo. I'm gonna, he, he crashed my party. He humiliated me in front of my, ne uh, in front of my uncle. I'm going to get revenge. And Tybalt starts beating the crap out of Romeo. And Romeo will not defend himself. And Mercutio, who is Romeo's best friend and possibly his lover, is like, no way. I can't take this humiliation. I'm not going to watch my best friend be beaten to a pulp. And my best friend won't even defend himself. And so he gets involved. Now remember, Mercutio is older. Tybalt and, and Romeo are the same age. They're probably about 16. Mercutio is 18. He's older. Paris is probably about 21. And so he gets involved. And Tybalt kills Mercutio. And he curses them. A plague on both your houses. They have made worms meet of me. It's a fight Mercutio wasn't even supposed to be in. And he got him killed. He's been stabbed. He knows because there is no, no modern medicine, he's been stabbed in a place that's going to kill him. It's going to lead him to bleed out or get an infection. He's going to die. Romeo is so mad, he hunts down Tybalt and kills Tybalt in revenge. And Juliet's family, Tybalt is their nephew, demands justice, which means Romeo has to flee, which means Juliet has to commit suicide to try to escape, and everyone ends up, and then Romeo hears about her death, and he comes back to the city knowing that if he's caught, he's going to die. He kills Paris to get to the body of, of Juliet, which you have to go. Paris was right to be like, some freak is coming to, to, to desecrate my girlfriend's, uh, my girlfriend's tomb, my girlfriend's body. Like, who, what, this teenage boy is coming to desecrate this young girl's, this 13-year-old girl's dead body. How effed up is that? So Paris is like, no, man, you're not going to do that. And Romeo's like, yeah, I am. Kills Paris. Picks up Juliet's body out of the tomb. It's like, oh my God, she's dead. Kills himself. And then she kills herself. Everybody's dead. That's peripatia. But peripatia starts. Everyone's dead. Starting from the moment Mercutio enters that fight. That is the reversal of fortune. 
Finally, Ananorisis. Ananorisis is the realization. It is the moment Mercutio goes, they have made worms meat of me. It is where Romeo goes, um, I am fortune's fool. It is the realization of one's nature, of the truth, of the situation. It is Darth Vader saying, Luke, I am your father. And Luke goes, no, it's impossible. And Vader goes, search your feelings. And then Luke lets out this guttural, no, which they tried to recreate in the, in the third movie, in the episode three, and it just comes off as dumb. And now it's a meme about how stupid yelling no is. It's like, oh, it's terrible. But Luke Skywalker pulled it off because Luke is awesome. But this is the moment when Luke realizes the man who is the most evil man in the universe, the man who he has been fighting for two movies, the man who has tried to kill him, is his father, who he has wanted to know his entire life. Luke is Telemachus. But remember, Telemachus meets his dad and helps his dad defeat evil. Whereas Luke meets his dad and his dad is evil. Anonorisis. So catharsis, the emotional connection. Peripatia, the reversal of fortune. And anonorisis, the realization of the truth. Of what's going on. Thank you.